Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. Good morning. How's everyone doing? It's a, it's a hard season, isn't it? It's been a hard season, and yet we're here together as a body. want to just say hello to those who are joining us online. My name is Joey, and I have the gift of continuing our series called Fulfilled this morning through the Gospel of Luke. So please, if you're here in person, if you're online, open your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 as we continue our series here. Hey, I just want to say uh, to those who are joining us online, we miss you uh, being here in person. Um, We are with you. We're together as one body in this time. Our prayer is hopefully as the year goes on, Lord willing, um, we continue to move through this pandemic. We'll be able to gather in person um, all together. We're praying and can't wait for that day. I know in this time, it's a weird time, isn't it? It's hard to gather with masks, but thank you for being here. You've shown up. Thank you for joining us online. You're showing up. And, uh, and we're here to grow in Christ. Like, we're not here to tickle your ears. We're not here to um, just have warm and fuzzies, though warm and fuzzies come along with it. But we're here to grow in Jesus. That's why we're here. We're here to equip you. We're here to be equipped. We're here to be formed in Christ. And, uh, and we're excited to continue in the gospel of Luke. Um, can't wait to get a gather, by the way, as David did su- uh, such a great job uh, just talking about next this week and next Sunday's gathering, Easter Sunday. Can't wait to see you there. So Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at verse 45 to 48 this morning. Uh, actually, not the traditional Palm Sunday passage of the triumphant entry, but uh, an event that is uh, closely connected to it actually flows right out of it that we're going to focus in on this morning as a body. So let me read this to us, and then we're going to dive in together. Sound good? Ready to roll? All right. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 45. And he entered the temple, this is Jesus, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Fathers, we open uh, your word this morning. We thank you that we've had the opportunity to sing to you collectively to partake in confession and be reminded that we are forgiven and loved. So Lord, as we open your word now, we ask you would feed our souls. Lord, we ask this just wouldn't be an intellectual exercise, but the truth here would pass through into the deepest places of who we are and you would surface the areas that you want to shape us and form us as individuals and as a collective body. Thank you for the gift of your word. It is precious. It is live. It cuts us. Lord, it it encourages us. It builds us up. And we sit under it as authority. We sit under you, under your authority. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here present with us. And you're leading us and guiding us, even in this difficult season, strengthening us, transforming us for your purposes. 
So we give you this space and time and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may know uh, I'm a painter and I love to paint. Um, I work on these little blocks of canvas. Well, it's not canvas, actually little blocks of wood. They function as the canvas that I paint on. And I love just uh, with color giving shape um, and form to to things. I'll put this right here. Um, and But sometimes when I paint, and maybe those of you who are artists or those of you who put your hand to things, you know that at times the form that you're intending or the shape that you're intending around something gets distorted. Or it doesn't quite come out the way you really were hoping or the way that you intended it. And when that happens, the feeling is frustration. You're like, ah. I, I had this plan, I had this design for this work of art, or I had this design for this thing. Maybe it's your lawn this spring. I had this design for, you know, this thing in my life, and I was putting my hand to it. And, and, and the way that it's turned out is not how I intended it to be. And the feeling behind that is one of frustration, sort of a, a kind of righteous anger, a righteous frustration. And we all have times in our lives, maybe this is you in this season right now, where the form of our lives or the form of our community or the form of our church or the form of our nation or the form of our world becomes deformed. And there's gaps, there's, there's, there's distortion. And when the form of our life is not following the function, it's frustrating. And so I just, I just want to start here because this is so much of what's happening in this passage. We're going to walk through it and un, as it unfolds here. What, what is that area in your life this morning? I mean, would you just take a moment to identify that, ask the Spirit of God to just surface that in you? Because, listen, you can talk to my wife, you can talk to our team here. We are all a work in progress. We're all a works of art in deep progress. And so what is it this morning? Where have you lost your shape, as it were? Where are there places where the form that God has created you to be, the function that he's created you for, has been lost? Maybe it's in how you're utilizing or not utilizing or or not caring for God's good creation. Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's with your spouse or a close friend. Maybe it's with your bodies and how you're stewarding your body. Maybe it's with your vocation or your work. Maybe it's with your rest. Where is the deformity? Where has the shape been lost, as it were? And Jesus, in this little section of Luke 19, 28 to 48... He has come into the city, the triumphant entry. Okay, that's what we celebrate with believers around the world today. We read it, we sung of it. And then we find him weeping over Jerusalem in verse 41 to 44. And now he has entered into what we might call the pinnacle of the city. The pinnacle of the city. You might even say the pinnacle of Jewish culture. The place where one ought to see God's good vision displayed in perfect, beautiful form. What am I talking about? The temple. Jesus comes into the temple. We find that right here in verse uh, 45. He entered the temple. And things have become distorted in the temple as we're going to see. And what we find in this passage is Jesus' passion. This is Passion Week. This is Holy Week. We see his passion, his fire coming out here, okay, for things having an integrated shape, things having integrity, things functioning in their given form as he designed. And and, and this is a picture for us from Isaiah 64, 8. 
Some of us this morning, the Lord wants to take into his hands like clay. He wants to to look at the form of our lives, the shape of our lives, and surface in us. What are those areas that he wants to reform? What are those areas that he wants to reshape in us? And the question for us this morning, this passage answers is, how does Jesus reshape or reform a life or a community that has lost its shape? Okay, let me just say that again. This is the question that this passage answers, one of the things that this passage answers. How does Jesus, how does he reshape or reform a community or a person whose life has lost its shape? And that's one of the most profound things we find in this passage. And we discover that he, he actually reforms and reshapes us in, in three, three observations in this passage. Through judgment, through justice, and then through empathy. And you can just follow along with us as we go through this, through judgment, through justice, and through empathy. First, through judgment, a reshaping through judgment. Verse 45, he entered the temple, and here's what he did when he gets into the temple. He began to drive out those who sold. Now, Luke's account is the simplest of all three of the synoptic gospels. So Mark and Matthew give us a little bit more detail. Let me give you uh, a little bit of the background here from the account of the other gospel writers. And I love how the gospel writers just work together. The Spirit of God led each of them to give us different perspectives around uh, the same event here. Matthew 21, 12, it says, He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. So they're selling and buying, we know from Matthew, and A little bit more exciting detail here, and you're probably familiar with this. Jesus is overturning the tables of money changers and the seats who sold the pigeons. So we have more details. Pigeons, tables are getting overthrown here in this passage. Okay, Mark gives us another detail. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? So here, Jesus isn't just driving people out. He's not just turning over tables. But he's like, no, you there? You can't come in. You can't come through the temple and, and, and sell those things. So he's actually doing a little bit of like space management, as he were, right there in the temple. Now, what we know is that this is actually the second time Jesus has gone into the temple, and he's turned over tables, and he's cleared out the temple. The first time we find it in John's account, in John chapter 2, there's some debate. Is it the same, uh, same account? Is it a different account? I believe, we believe it's a different account because it, begin, it happens at the beginning of his ministry and it's just like Jesus as you see through his ministry to repeat himself. He'll do things more than once. And he probably learned some things from the first time he did it and now this is the second time. But the first time he did it, and, and maybe some of this is going on in the second one, he's he, in John 2, he has a whip of cords and he's driving sheep and oxen out. Now there's not sheep and oxen in this setting, but you get this idea in this fuller picture of Jesus in full array clearing out the temple. I mean, he's clearing the house. Now, what is he doing? What is he doing in this moment? Like, what, what actually is this act? Malachi chapter 3, you can turn with me there. It should be on the screen behind me here, beside me here. Gives us a great window into this because this is a reference point to this passage. The Old Testament always interprets the New Testament. It's such a gift that we have the Old Testament to help us understand. Here's what Malachi 3, uh, section of 1 through 5 says. Behold, I send my messenger. This is... a you know, looking forward to uh, the Messiah, and he will prepare the way for me, and the Lord whom you seek, listen, will suddenly come into his temple. 
For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. By the way, where do Levites minister? In the temple. And refine them like gold and silver. It's a prophecy. It's a foreshadowing of this very event. Now, when I am working on a painting and it is not cooperating, it is so frustrating. And sometimes the Lord, in his deep love for us, needs to strip things back. Or he uses circumstances as painful as they are to break things down and wipe the canvas completely clean. Doesn't destroy the canvas. Just as the surface that I'm working on needs to be seriously reshaped, seriously reformed. And that's a cleansing. That's a clearing. Now, why is he doing this? This is a judgment that we might, we might call it a judgment. Okay? This is Jesus in love, okay? not out of control, crazy Jesus in his flesh, but this is Jesus in loving control, looking at the temple, coming into the space and saying, there was a purpose for this house, and we're going to see this in a moment, and at this moment, it has to be cleared out. It's a judgment. Why is he making this judgment in this moment? I mean, what is it that incites Jesus to the degree that he needs to exercise this kind of judgment? Verse 46, passage goes on. Here's what he said to them. He drives out, he clears the temple, and then he says this, verse 46. It is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's it right there. Those two pieces. We're going to look at this. He quotes two passages again from the Old Testament. The first is Jeremiah chapter 11. Okay? Very important passage here. Let me just read you the section here. Verses 4, 5, 6, and then jump to 11. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the passage Jesus is quoting here. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and then jumping to verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Now, this is the second part of it, okay? Let me jump to the first part of it, okay? My house shall be called a house of prayer. This is quoting directly from Isaiah, chapter 56, verses 7. Here's what he says. I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them happy in the temple where people pray to me. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my temple will be known as a temple. And listen to this where all the nations may pray. Now, this entire scene is unfolding in, in the temple complex in a section called the Court of the Gentiles. It's kind of the outer area where people who were not Jewish could come to make sacrifices, to pray, to be included in God's covenant community. This is a throwback to Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abram, and he says, I'm going to bless you. Why? Why did God tell Abram he was going to bless him? For the nations. For the nations. And here we find in this quote from Isaiah 56, 
that part of the function of the temple, not the whole function of the temple, but part of the function of the temple was to be used as a place of prayer for the Gentiles, for the nations. Mark 11, Mark includes this. He says, Jesus, he quotes Jesus saying, a house of prayer for the nations. Okay? This is why in that Malachi 3 passage that we looked at earlier, there's such a call for judgment for those who are oppressing the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner. Because the people who are outcast, the people who are on the outside, the people who are on the fringe, the people who are pushed out by culture and society are the ones over and over again through the biblical narrative that Jesus goes after. The temple was to be a place where the watching world could come to correspond with God or to meet God. But Jesus sees that this house of prayer for the nations has become something else. Jeremiah 11, a den of robbers. A place of thieving. A place of robbery. And Jesus is grieved, okay? He's grieved that this temple that he has that has, that, that has an integral shape, is being utilized for a purpose other than its design. And this is God's heart for justice. Jesus cleanses the temple in judgment. And what is he after in this moment? What is driving him? What is motivating him? Justice. In fact, when something that God creates and shapes is not living within its design, you might actually call that an injustice because it doesn't have integrity. It's not being, acting, living in what it was designed to do. And the religious leaders, they have violated the shape of the space that was designed for the purpose of the Gentiles to flourish, and they manipulated it into a place where the Gentiles were being taken advantage of. And Jesus comes into the temple and he sees this and he is rightly furious. By the way, this is why in verse 47, all of the religious leaders want to destroy Jesus. We, we get a, a little hint of it in, in Matthew's account. Why? Because the blind and the lame were coming to him in the temple and he healed them. In other words, the outcasts, the outsiders were coming to Jesus and he was caring for them. He was healing them in the temple and the religious leaders were furious because of this. And it makes sense because here they were taking advantage of those very people, the Gentiles, the outsiders. The atrocity is that the Gentiles were being robbed, not only financially, we, we see this here, they're being taken advantage of financially, but spiritually. It is such a horrific witness to the gospel. And this is, a, this is a strong call to the body of Christ, to our church and to the body of Christ as a whole. This is a moment in the middle of a pandemic where the world is aching I mean, David mentioned it earlier, the world around us, friends, neighbors, I know it's, we are too, but the world is aching without hope. It is not a moment where as followers of Christ, as people who claim the name of Jesus are to huddle up and hide out and, and remove ourselves 
from the conversation. In fact, it is a moment where we are compelled, and we're going to see this in a moment, to actually go to the Gentiles, so to speak, as it were, to go to those who are on the fringe, to open up that temple or the house or, you know, and, and say, come on in. Let's reach. Let's love. Let's extend grace. Let's not violate. Let's open our lives. Let's open the story of our lives. Let's open our homes. Let's open our pocketbooks. Let's open our relationships to the people around us who are desperately in need of the gospel of grace. That was the point of the court of the Gentiles. That was the point where Jesus says, this house is to be a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. But beneath this surface robbing of the Gentiles, as it were, there is a deeper robbing going on. There is a deeper thieving going on. There is a deeper injustice that incites Jesus' wrath. And I know wrath is not a a popular word in this day, and I know because connotatively wrath often refers to somebody who's completely out of control and unloving and in their flesh. That's not the kind of wrath God has. The kind of wrath God has is compelled by his love. And his love is such that he cannot turn away from evil and injustice. And he is rightly and justly angered by things like this that are going on. What is the deeper robbing and the deeper thieving that's happening that incites Jesus' wrath? I mean, we, by the way, we don't hear this a lot, right? I love Jesus, the soft Jesus. I love Jesus, the cuddly Jesus. I love the Jesus who just, you know, tends to children. But, but actually, Jesus is the perfect full picture of God. And so we see him in his absolute, utter, radical compassion and love, and he is also rightly angry with sin. But what is this deeper injustice that's happening in this passage? And it's the same thing that happens in our life, in your life, in my life, when the shape of our lives get out of form. Israel's repurposing the temple into this thievery of the watching world was just one indicator that the people of God were not living in the shape that God formed them to be. The problem with an unformed painting, okay? The problem with a painting that is deformed, the problem with a painting that has lost its shape, it's not just that, it's not just that it doesn't have a beautiful shape, that's tragic. There's an injustice in that in itself. Oh, this painting ought to be beautiful, but, it's, but it's, 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 it's deformed. It doesn't have its shape. But there's actually something underneath of that that is the real problem. It is that it is not reflecting the beautiful shape that I purposed it to be. It's not reflecting, as it were, me. The painting that I, as the creator of this painting, intended it to be is not reflecting what I intended it to be. Now, Joey, what do you mean by this, okay? When we do not live within the shape that God gave us, what is underneath of that is not just that I'm not doing what God has asked me to do or be. It's that I'm not actually reflecting God's purpose and intention for my life. Or another way to say it is, I am not offering God or bringing God glory in that moment. 
Or another way to say it is, I am actually stealing or robbing glory from God for myself. That's the problem underneath the problem here. Okay? When we do not live in the shape God gave us, God is not receiving glory. Or we might say God's glory is being robbed. And this is at the heart of Israel thieving from the poor in a setting of worship. It is what lies at the heart of any time that we violate God's design in our lives. We don't only rob a person for their good, but we also are robbing God of glory himself and putting it on us. Everything that is from God is to be stewarded for his glory. It's from him, it's for him, it's through him. And there is an inherent value in the use of a thing that was designed to be a certain way. It is infinitively, it's infinitely valuable. It, it's, it's why we call this worship. It brings worth to God. That is worship for us, not just what we do here on a Sunday, but what we do with the course of our lives, our actions, our activities, our hearts, all being offered back to our king in worship, being the kind of people, being the kind of community that Christ has called us to be. And this robbing of God's glory is the violation, is the sin that is under every distortion. And this is why a distorted shape is so grievous. This is why when you see a person running as far away from who they were created to be as possible, it breaks your heart. It rightly breaks your heart. It's why when we sin, it's why when we violate the shape that God gave us and the things that God called us to do, when we don't do those things, it grieves our hearts. It's certainly one of our deepest struggles in the 21st century. I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but, you know, pre-1500s, pre the advent of the modern world, there was a general belief that God had given a shape to the world, and we could look out to creation, we could look outside of ourselves to find that shape and to find that design. But over the last, I mean, this is gross over-summarization, but over the last three, four, five hundred years, we have turned inward, first exclusively to reason, then exclusively to my internal sort of emotions, and my whole point of reference is just me, myself, and I. And so, of course, the shape gets lost. Of course, we lose sight of who God had created, has created us to be. And so we have become, in so many ways, it's in me, it's in you, a people who are hungry for our own glory. And we will do whatever it takes to get it, even to violate God's good design, God's good shape of things. And maybe in this last year, maybe you felt a little bit lost. I mean, can we just be honest about that? It's been a hard year. Maybe you feel like the shape of your life that God has created you has been lost. Maybe you've become fragmented. Maybe there's habits. Maybe there's practices that you picked up. God wants to take the canvas of your life and wipe clean. He has a design for the world, for us as individuals and for us as a community, as a church, and that is to glorify him. And it's a hard question, but what are the ways that we are appropriating his glory for ourselves this morning? Might this be a moment where Jesus wants to further and deepen 
the shaping of our lives. But this leads us to our final observation here, and the question is, well, how does this happen? (laughs) Because if you just read this passage, there's not a lot of constructing going on, is there? I mean, not on the surface. It's just like Jesus comes in, he clears house. It's not like he, after he turned the tables over, he put the tables back, and then he kind of like put everything back on the table neatly, did he? It's not like, you know, you don't get that sense here. You don't actually read that he did that kind of a thing. So what about construction? How actually does God reshape us? This is our third observation. Not only does he do it in judgment and for justice, but also from empathy, from empathy. So we find the motivation for this clearing, this cleansing, this reshaping in the account of what happens just before this passage. If you read verse 41 When Jesus drew near and saw the city, what does he do? He weeps over it. We sung it earlier, God, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem and he looks over the city And he is moved to tears. He is filled with a compassion, a source of love so deep, so profound, so foreign, so other, a love that cannot just ignore evil and distortion. See, Jesus looks at Jerusalem. He looks at the temple. He looks at your life. He looks at my life. And in love, he says, the distortion has to be dealt with. And you cannot reform yourself. You can't make a painting out of yourself. There is an artist that has to do the work in and through you. We need God to recreate us. We can't create ourselves. We can't recreate ourselves. We don't have that kind of power. Will God certainly use our actions and our attitudes? Certainly he will use those things. But the source of the reshaping has to come from him. And there's a decision in a way that Jesus has to make, that God has to make. Does he crush us? Does he destroy our image? Does he just throw the canvas away? Or does he clear the canvas out? And does he create a blank canvas? And this entire account is perhaps one of the most vivid painful but beautiful performance works of art, I would argue, in all of history. What Jesus is doing here is a foreshadowing of God's love for the world on display. Do you want to understand the gospel that we talk about week in and week out? Do you want to know what the good news is for the world? Do you want to know where construction comes from? Listen to this. Jesus is here doing the justice that ought to happen to you because of your sin and me because of my sin, but instead on the cross, he bears it upon himself. He empathizes unto death. His tears lead him to the cross. Why? What do you say? How do you say that, Joey? Because it would be Jesus who in just a few days after this event would have the tables, as it were, turned on him. He would be betrayed. It would be Jesus just a few days after this event 
who himself would be whipped. And it would be Jesus who just a few days later would be driven out himself. He would be outside of the camp, as Hebrews 13, 12 says, where he would suffer. It was the tears of Jesus over Jerusalem, the deep compassion of Jesus that drove him to the cross for you and me that we might be cleansed. He was the one who was cleansed. He was the one who was refined. He was the one who was cleared. He was the one who was stripped. He was the one who endured the suffering that you and I deserve. The loving, right, just wrath of God coming down upon him. Why? So that you and I don't have to bear the sin of our lives. The consequences and the punishment of our sin. The entire temple cleansing is a picture of this so that you and I might be reshaped. This is why 2 Corinthians 5 says this, you in Christ and I in Christ, we in Christ are a new creation, a restored creation, not damaged goods that have been kicked away and off to the side, but a new creation. This is why Ephesians 2 says you were created for good works, or in that context, you were recreated, you were brought into the new life in Christ for good works to have a shape and to have a form. What Jesus is after is reintegration, reformation, reshaping. And the, this is the radical claim of the gospel. It's a claim of reintegration for the human condition. It's that though the shape, the image, has been profoundly distorted, God says, I will reshape you integrally. Though as vessels we are cracked in Christ, we are clay in the potter's hands. Though we are broken beyond repair, God says, I will heal you. Though you think your life has been wasted, though you think that you've made such a a mess of your life that it can't be reclaimed, that you think all those years have been lost. Jesus, in love, in tears, in empathy, in compassion, going to the cross, says, I will restore the years the locust stole. You think this last year was a waste. Jesus says, I'm going to restore it all. I'm going to reshape it. I'm going to reform it. That Psalm 51, I think, is one of the most beautiful pictures of this, would be the story of our lives. Purge me, the psalmist says, with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit a blank canvas, a canvas that has been cleared and is a beautiful thing. And that is the hope, my brothers and sisters, that we live in this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so loving that you meet us in each moment, in each situation, 
Lord, you take the distortion, you take the sin, you take the places of our lives where the shape has been lost and in love you make judgment and in love you execute justice and in love through empathy you went to the cross to meet us where we are and to carry upon yourself that which we deserve and you did this that we might be caught up in you, restored as a new creation. And we are so thankful for that this morning, that you didn't just throw the canvas away, but that you decided to recreate upon it. So as we come to the table this morning, we ask that you would, through the power of your spirit, surface the ways that you want to reshape us this week as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday. And we pray this in Jesus' name.